When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the 66 to 87 podcast. It's the first edition of August, which means we're only about a month away from training camp getting started and all the fun begins again, uh, which is awesome. Uh, This is Tom Reed, your host and moderator, joined by, as always, by Taylor Haas and Dave Molinari. Uh, We will be joined a little bit later. Oh my God, there's a plane flying right overhead. He doesn't have a garbage truck behind him, so that's good. Uh, joined a little bit later by ES, or I'm sorry, NHL Network's Jody Shelley, who also does a lot of the games for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Always insightful, good to talk to. Uh, he'll be on a little bit later. But uh, this is uh, being recorded on a Monday, and uh, Brock McGinn, uh, one of the newest Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, met with the media on Zoom calls uh, today. Uh, Dave, you were on that, that entire call. Uh, what did he have to say in his first real meeting with the, the uh, Penguin media? Well, not, nothing uh, terribly inflammatory or, or insightful. Um, he says that he uh, part of the reason that he signed here is that he believes the Penguins are capable of winning a Stanley Cup. I think, you know, that certainly is open to debate. Um, I said he believes that he's capable of producing more offense than he did when he was in Carolina. Although, you know, that's not why the, the Penguins brought him in. Uh, but he did have a, a season last year where over an 82 game schedule would have uh, projected to 82 goals or excuse me, to 18 <laughs> goals over 82 games. Uh 82 goals, yeah, they, they probably – he might even rise above the bottom six if he could score 82. <laughs> um, but, though, no, so, you know, there was nothing uh, nothing that particularly stood out from the, uh, the discussion. But, you know, he, uh, he does seem like he's excited for the season ahead and uh, looking forward to being here. Look, I, I, don't, we, I don't – we don't have to tell any of our listeners – and know what Brandon Tanif meant to this lineup the last couple of years and how well he played in it, the energy he brought, uh, the tenacity, uh, some great clips. Uh, you had, I love to have him mic'd up every game. Uh, but I, I'll say this. For me, I, I've watched a lot of Carolina. I've, I really liked, I've liked that team in years past. And I think, uh, I, I think McGinn's a pretty good player. I, I think he a little bit different, but I, I think he'll be a nice fit. Taylor, you did one of your uh, drive to the net uh, uh, segments on him. Give me your initial impressions of him, what you saw of him in Carolina, and how he might fit here. Yeah. So, I mean, something he did talk about on Monday is how he's looking to, you know, up his offensive game, and he kind of was able to show a little bit more of that. Uh, in Carolina last season, but if you look at like the breakdown of his points uh, last season, so I mean he had the eight goals and five assists in, in 37 games. He was hurt at the end of the season, so he didn't play the full the full season. But 
Um, nearly all of that production, uh, seven goals and four assists, came in the first 16 games of the season um, when he was mostly playing on the top line with uh, Sveshnikov and Ajo. Uh, and then by late February, I mean, he was he was bumped down to the third line when the Hurricanes got healthier. And uh, in that last 21 games of the regular season, he only scored one goal and one assist. Uh, so once he wasn't playing, you know, with those top guys, he really wasn't scoring at all. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how what he's able to produce because I, he, I mean, he's not going to be a top line player here. You have to figure. Um, so it'll be interesting to see just where his offense is at if if he does stick on the bottom six. But I mean, as far as the defensive responsibilities, uh, he he was strong. Um, I have the the chart in that story. You know, the, the I, I like using the J Fresh hockey uh, where the, it kind of breaks down in percentile. Then he was in the seventy fifth percentile for even strength defense, eighty third for PK, and that's kind of what you want for for a guy like that. And he was matched up against uh, good competition too. Um, his most frequent uh, forward opponents last season, um, the the first four, it was. Um, Patrick Kane and Debrinkat with Chicago and then uh, Point and Palat with Tampa Bay. So, I mean, he was up out there against, you know, like good, good competition. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that offense, that's kind of what I'm most interested to see from him. Dave, your impressions of him? Uh, I, you know, I think he's a good third line caliber player, you know, good defensively. Uh, you know, people who watched him on a regular basis in Carolina say that he was able to generate and be involved in a lot more scoring chances than he was able to capitalize on. I don't know if that's the good news or the bad news for the Penguins. Uh, you know, he probably will have some pretty decent line mates here if he's if he's on the uh, the third line, as we would expect. You know, when they're healthy, he would have Jeff Carter as, as his center, uh, which he could certainly do a lot worse. So I don't know that he'll necessarily be in a position to absolutely maximize his offensive uh, potential, you know, have one of those 82-goal seasons we mentioned <laughs> earlier. Uh, but, you know, he, sh- he should have uh, a, a chance to, to put up so- some decent numbers while, you know, playing, playing well, uh, in his own end. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting. I, yeah, if you're playing with Jeff Carter, just go to the net because the puck's probably going to end up there at some point, the way he shoots and is usually gets it on net. So we'll another, see what happens. Hey, another thing from that, that, you know, stats piece I did of among hurricanes forwards, um, McGinn was the best at uh, creating off of high danger passing plays, which is from behind the net or through the slot. So if he's kind of in that area, uh, he, he uh, relative to the rest of the Hurricanes forwards, he produced the best off of you know those kinds of shots. So if he does, you know, that might mesh well with Carter. Yeah, well, there you go. All right, let's move on. Uh, Zach Aston Reese uh, was one of 17 players around the league. Uh, to elect to go to salary arbitration, uh, as announced by the NHLPA, uh, no formal date yet for his arbitration, should it get to that point. Uh, but somewhere in the period of August 11th to the 26th, uh, if they do get to that point, uh, Dave, this is one of those things, arbitrations can be, they can be tricky and they can get personal. Uh, even though you like the player, uh, basically, your side is supposed to come in and tell them why 
why this player is not worth the money he's asking for. And sometimes these can get a little bit nasty. Uh, I think a lot of teams try to avoid them. We've seen in the past, a lot of times at the, at the 11th hour, a deal is reached. Uh, your thoughts on, on, on what, what, what lies ahead here with Czar? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say because we don't know what positions the two sides have staked right. out to this point in the, in the negotiations. We don't know how far apart they are. And, you know, there's no risk for Aston Reese in filing for arbitration because if he reaches an agreement with the Penguins beforehand, uh, you know, you simply cancel the arbitration hearing and, and yeah. life goes on. So, you know, I, I certainly don't think that unless there is a, uh, a much greater gap uh, than, than we suspect, you know, between the two negotiating positions. I, I don't know that there's anything to be uh, particularly worked up about at this point. Uh, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it would benefit both sides to get something done before arbitration. And that's what happened in 2019 when he did uh, file for arbitration, but they, they agreed to a two-year contract, $1 million cap hit. Um, it was literally the day of his his hearing was supposed to happen. Um, and that so Aston Reese, if this does go to arbitration and, you know, it the ruling is, is his contract, he's only entitled to a uh, one-year deal um, if, if that's how this is settled because he turns 27 later this month. It's last year of restricted free agency. Yeah, you have to think he'd want more than, than one year. Um but either way, if this and if this does go to arbitration, the Penguins are locked into whatever is decided because the only way, um, if a player elects arbitration, that a team can walk away from it and send a player to uh, unrestricted free agency is if the settlement is above, it's it like just over 4.5 million. He's not going to get that. So, um, you know, if this goes to arbitration, that the ruling is going to be binding, they have to stick with it. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think this this is just kind of more ne- negotiating power for Aston Reese. Um, it, it just creates pressure to get a deal done sooner. I mean, I, I you'd have to think they're going to work something out before um, before it gets to that, but uh, we'll see. Back to the the chart, you know, the percentiles and all that that I mentioned for um, uh, McGinn, it, the even strength defense. Aston Reese's percentile for the for the last two seasons was a hundred percent. He he was number one. Um, at you know preventing scoring chances for the last two years, um, so I mean that kind of stuff. It, you're you're not there's like limits to what you can and can't bring up um, in in these kind of hearings. So I mean stuff like this, I don't think they're allowed to. You're allowed to talk about his defensive game and stuff like that, and maybe that should help his case. But I mean as far as these like um, niche advanced stats, I don't think those are allowed to be brought up. But uh, I mean it's he definitely has you know, stuff on his side that he can argue for. Dave, I, I like this player. I, I, I've, the, 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 since coming over to the, the staff, I, you know, I'd watched him before, but watching him a, a, almost every game this year, I like kind of what he brings. He's probably a bottom six guy. I know at times you've lobbied to maybe even try to throw him on the power play with a little bit of a net foot presence. Uh, if you're the Penguins and you end up, uh, you end up kind of getting a deal done, uh, would you would you be in favor of a couple years term uh, with Czar? Yeah, I, I don't think he's anywhere near the end of his career at this right. point. You know, we're not talking about a, a guy in you know Jeff Carter's 
demographic. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, three or four years. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to make that that kind of commitment to him. And, you know, I, I suspect Aston Reese would, uh, would certainly uh, go for that as well. It might uh, actually lower the uh, cap hit that he would take. And, and you know, if, if he would then go on to have one of those 82 goal seasons, you know, he'd, <laughs> he'd really be a bargain for you. So it, it's like, it would be like the 85 Oilers all over again, Dave. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Taylor, your, your final thoughts on, on him. If you're, if you're the Penguins, you want to lock him up for a couple of years? Uh, yeah, three-ish years would be reasonable. That, so the website, um, it's called Evolving Hockey. It's like another advanced stats site. They, they do these kind of um, projections for, for free agents based on, you know, comparable players. Um, and they're usually pretty dead on, pretty accurate. Uh, and they have him uh, worth $2.1 million. Um, so yeah. you're probably looking at something around that range, and I don't think that's that um, that unreasonable. Maybe if you could, you know, give him a little bit more term, you could lower that that cap hit. Um, but yeah, I mean, he he's he's me low cost signing either way. So um, three three ish years, three four years, that that would be reasonable, I think. That's the site, the run by a couple of brothers, right? Is that the one? Um, they're, I'm not they're, sure. They're, There's so many of them. Yeah, I, for some reason, I, I think I met them in Columbus. And I'm boy, if I get this wrong, I, I apologize already on the air. But yes, that's a good that's a good site. That's a, that is a very good site. Uh, they have right. the Teddy Bluger contract dead on, like exactly yeah. like the hundred thousand. Yeah. So it's um, it's 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 a for for fans that want to start to get a little bit more analytically minded. And let's be honest, that's the way the the game is going. Uh, Evolving Wild is is a very good site. Uh, and let's move on here. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone would have had on their bingo card, uh, playoff bingo card, what if Casey DeSmith hadn't got hurt? Uh, but here we are. Uh, every segment here during the offseason, we kind of take one player and kind of evaluate his season. And Casey DeSmith's uh, probably comes down to what did Casey DeSmith not gotten hurt right before the playoffs started? And as uh, – and as Tristan Jari starts to melt down a little bit, would the Penguins have have maybe gone with him in a must-win game six? Uh, just looking at his stats over his career, pretty steady as a backup. Uh, you look at his save percentage, it's just it's always stayed above 910, 921, 916, 912 last year, 2.54 goals against average. In 20 games, I thought he was actually the better goaltender early in the season. Not that anyone was lighting the world on fire for the Penguins in the first 20 games. I thought he was decent. Again, I don't, I don't ever, I don't project him to be a starter. Uh, but I thought, uh, Dave, if if you were, if you were sitting in 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 uh, Mike Sullivan's position going into Game Six, and you had a healthy Casey DeSmith, would you have played him? No. You would have Absolutely. Jari did not have a bad game five. Jari had a horrific, ghastly, unforgivable mistake that ended right. game five, but he didn't have a poor overall performance in that game. Um, you know, he, he's your number one guy, uh, you know, unless you had reason to believe that he was going to implode the way he did in game six, um, I absolutely would not have uh, 
change goalies. I think that would have come across to everyone, including the uh, the guys in the, in the locker room, as a panic move. So no, right. that's I absolutely would not have uh, uh, started to Smith. Uh, now you know I would have uh, not necessarily waited too terribly long into Game Six before inserting him when I saw the way the game was going, but I definitely yeah. would not have started him. Taylor? Yeah, I mean, we had this conversation before of, you know, if he were healthy, would we have even seen him? And and I'm kind of on the same page as Dave, where I don't think we would have seen him before game five. And then Jari's game five, like the the rest of the game, he had a good game five. It was just, you know, the, the turnover in overtime. Um, but I don't think that would have been enough to, you know, change goalies going into game six. I think we would have seen the Smith at some point in game six, but maybe, I mean, by then the way that game was going, I think it would have been too late anyway. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I don't, th- I, I, but I don't think we would, we would have seen him if he were healthy other than in game six. And even then it wouldn't have made a difference. You would not, you maybe not have put him in. I'm trying to get back game four when it started to get a little bit away from them in the third period, just to give him some minutes or, or no, you just, you just ride that out. I, know. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, go I mean, ahead, Taylor. Like, you, you go ahead. You go ahead and answer that. If if the game was that out of hand, maybe um, to get him some playing time in case he is he does end up getting needed later. But then again, it, it's not something that would have made much of a difference. I think. Yeah. No, and you know, you certainly would have gone back to Jari in in game sure. five anyway. Game so five. you know the. The scenario would have been pretty much the the same as it was, you know, as it actually played out in reality. So, yeah, it looks to be, and we're going to get into this a little bit more in our next segment. But right now, and a lot can change. It looks there's a good chance that uh, they just run it back with the same uh, two goalies they had last year. What is your level of confidence in DeSmith, Dave, as a uh, as as the backup goalie here? I think he's absolutely fine as a backup. I think I yeah. think that's that's been established that if if you are just looking for a guy to be a traditional backup goalie to, you know, start 20 25 games, you know, something in that neighborhood, that he'll do a uh, perfectly adequate or or better job than that. You know, if you think you need somebody to either mentor Jari or press him uh, for playing time, you know, maybe you look elsewhere, but if you just want a guy to be a backup, I have absolutely uh, no issue with, with Casey DeSmith handling that job. Taylor. Yeah. I mean, he's a fine backup. He's not, he's not a one B, um, you know, to, to go along with the one a, he's not going to, like Dave said, he's not going to press Jari to necessarily be better because he's not going to take over the, starting job at least for you know permanently uh so i mean i think if they do upgrade the goaltending um in any way we've i mean i mentioned it like i don't think it would have been moving out jari for a different number one i think keep jari get a different one b to play along with him and be that insurance and be that kind of um you know someone can push him and dismiss just isn't that god uh, Craig Button, we had Craig Button on last week, and, and Button's thought, and, and we've heard this before, is if you're going to keep Jari, 
nothing against Casey DeSmith. Maybe you want to bring in a veteran goalie uh, who's been been in the wars, uh, can help him, mentor him through uh, the up and down times, even in the playoffs, even if you're not the goalie's not playing. And Dave, I thought you had an interesting story the other day. I I don't can't foresee Henrik Lundqvist. Uh, being in, 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 in penguin colors next year, but I, I did think it was kind of an out of the box uh, thought by you. If uh, you know, obviously uh, Henrik Lundqvist last year did not play. There were some concerns about his health with his heart. Uh, we'll see where he is, whether he decides he wants to come back for another season. Uh, but I did think it was an interesting out of the box thought of here's a guy who's played in a Stanley cup final has been a Vezina trophy winner has been a finalist other times. Uh, just your your thoughts uh, on that story, uh, why you wrote it, and kind of uh, how what is how possible is something like that? And if, would you let's put it this way: if you're the Penguins, would you kick the tires there? Would you ask him, "Hey, where what are you thinking?" And would you at least be thoughtful of this? Well, that that would really depend on what I felt that I had seen from him, you know, while scouting him two seasons ago in his last year in, in New York. Um, you know, first of all, he, you know, he's made it pretty clear that he wants to continue playing, but he does not have the medical clearances that he needs yet to, to resume playing. So, you know, the, the whole issue might be moot. I, I think it's highly unlikely at, at best that he would end up with the Penguins, but, you know, if if they would decide that they wanted to bring in an experienced guy, one who seems highly motivated, doesn't mean he's still highly capable, but seems highly motivated to take one last run at, at winning a Stanley Cup, you know, maybe that's uh, something they could look at. But I, I really don't expect it to happen. Right. All right. Well, we'll move on. We're going to the roundtable segment next. Stick with us here on the 66 to 87 podcast. Welcome back to the 66 to 87 podcast here on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. Uh, our leader, uh, uh, Dayan Kovacevic, as always, writes several columns a week, and DK never holds back. He's, he's certainly somebody who is uh, very passionate no matter what he's writing about. And I'm sure that uh, the headline of today's column probably caught a lot of Penguins fans and maybe some people in the organization. Uh, certainly caught their attention. His headline today was, seriously, what in the heck are the Penguins doing this summer? And my guess is there's probably a few Penguin fans that are probably asking the same questions. Uh, we always mention here, we've been mentioning this since really the start of free agency and even right before that in the expansion draft, we, there's still time. But as I mentioned at the start of this, we're now in August. So we got about five or six weeks here before training camp. And DK's tone here is simply, man, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been some departures here. When we, we talk about Tanif being gone, uh, we talk about Freddie Goudreau being gone. Uh, there's been a, so much talk about, can they go back into the season with Tristan Jari and Casey DeSmith? Uh, should they have, should they have, could they have made some kind of effort to get Mark andre Fleury how did Cody Cece get away? 
And there's just, I've said, again, I, I think there's probably the, the people out there in the fan base, they're kind of wondering what is going on? What, why aren't the Penguins making, being a little bit more proactive? So Taylor, I'll start with you. Talk us off the ledge here a little bit about what's going on and is this, are the, these legitimate concerns and is there, when you take them not in one by one, but in total, in totality, uh, that's a, seems like a, a lot to do here between now and the start of the season. Yeah. I mean, the, the team last year, they did win uh, the division and they would have made it out of, you know, the first round, maybe further if they had, you know, decent uh, goaltending. Jari can still be that, that guy. Um, for them, they, 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 you know, the way he ended the playoffs last year, that doesn't mean that they necessarily have to go out and get a goaltender. I mean, we're just talking about bring back Flurry. Flurry had, you know, playoff struggles of his own early in his career, and now people are looking at him as the answer because people can grow out of it. Um, but as far as like, you know, looking at every one of these individual moves Hextall did, and you know, getting all worked up about him, that just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, Flurry. Flurry was never going to come back here. You're back when he was with Vegas. I mean, the reason Vegas was looking to unload him is because they wanted to dump his seven million dollars salary. You know, people look at oh, the Blackhawks got Flurry for nothing. That means the Penguins could have gotten Flurry for nothing. No, because the Penguins could have taken on that seven million dollars. Vegas was not looking to retain any of it. Um, and if you want to get you know a third team involved and you know make it really complicated, you, it's. Re- rebuilding teams are the ones that you know be the they're the those third teams they want picks and prospects the penguins don't have those to give up um and then i mean once flurry was in chicago that's not an option either because i will now he he wants to play there he's going to chicago they're not going to flip that that goal they're not going to flip him now that he wants to play there so uh flurry was never an option and then the the cody cc thing everyone's obsessed with this idea that cody cc was allowed to walk like he's a fridge and he can do what he wants um, he has no reason to really be loyal to Pittsburgh. He was here for what six months out of his life total. Um, he got four years at for 3.25 uh, with Edmonton. I who's to say that even if the Penguins did offer that, that he would have taken it here? Um, I mean, I tweeted this uh, Sunday night three, four years from now, which team is going to be in a better position? Um, the Oilers probably will still have Drysaddle and McDavid. Um, they're not without their flaws, but I think it's a whole lot easier to to fix where they are than to, you know, get a new core, make the Penguins core younger. Um, so I think the idea that the Penguins, you know, just didn't want to scrounge together the money for Cody Cece, he might not have taken it anyway. Um, so uh, looking at all these individual moves in isolation, um, it just it is silly. I think. Dave, I want to start with you on a topic that you broached in our last uh, 66 to 87 podcast. So that means fans have to go back and listen. Uh, but I, for those who don't want to, Dave's point was uh, uh, to Cody Cece's situation, maybe part of the thinking of the organization is we just locked up John Marino, a guy that we really liked. Uh, now, again, that was the previous administration uh, did the, uh, the uh, locking up. But maybe part of the thinking was, is we can save that money for something else and just bump John Marino up in the pairings that, 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 that they like the kid. They think he's going to be a pretty good defenseman. 
do you think that could have played into their thinking here? And again, I, I know you were giving your opinion the last time, but do you think that that, that at least thought that, that crossed their mind as, as they were weighing whether to give a little money to CC? Well, it certainly could have. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether it did or not. Uh, you know, Ron Hextall has uh, not been sharing any of, you know, many of his private thoughts with people outside the organization. Um, you know, I, I certainly think that uh, Marino, based especially on what he showed us during his rookie season, is is certainly capable of being a good second pairing defenseman and an effective partner for Mike Matheson. Um, not that my opinion particularly matters, but, you know, in general, you know, I think people shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, the regular season opener is October 12th. And if the Penguins roster on October 11th, looks like it does today, then there is real cause for concern. But there's an awful lot that can change between now and then. And just because, you know, they didn't make epic moves in the first couple days of free agency doesn't mean that, you know, that the roster, you know, when, when they go to Tampa is, you know, going to be the same as it is today. I think you know, people obviously, you know, like seeing activity in free agency and, and they enjoy trades and player movement and, and whatever. But, you know, you really don't have to have your team intact in, in mid to late summer. So, you know, I, I think people would be, uh, would be well advised if only for the sake of their blood pressure to be a little more patient, although I, I understand that most people think that patience is okay as long as you do it in a hurry. <laughs> and, and, and to exp- expound on that point, I guess beyond even the, the opener, uh, you do have a – it's going to be an 82-game schedule. It's not going to be the sprint in 56 games that it was last year. So during the course of this season, right up to the trade deadline, uh, they can make moves. Uh, and, again, I think – We've talked about this before. Uh, this is such a volatile market right now with moves being made and players coming available that you'd not think were going to be available uh, back in June. Uh, there probably is time over the course of the year that they can they can make moves if they feel that they have to. Well, so, at, the, at the moment, I believe there are seven teams that are above the salary cap. Right. Which is, you know, legal. You're allowed to be 10% over the cap during the offseason. But those teams, you know, <laughs> obviously are going to have to make some moves. Right. Um, and, you know, when one move is made, it, it often, you know, triggers a series of, of moves around the league. You know, there's, there can be a domino effect. So, you know, I really think people should... Uh, you know, perhaps focus on the Steelers training camp or the <laughs> Pirates playoff drive, you know, and, and not focus too much on, on, on the Penguins roster just yet. Hey, we can get back to fail, fail for Kumar because Rocker's going to be back in the draft. So maybe maybe the Pirates end up getting Kumar Rocker after all. Go ahead, Taylor. There, so yeah, there, are, there are seven teams above. There are also three teams below the floor. Um the Red Wings are four and a half million, so they need to spend at least four and a half million. You know, this 
the Sabres are about seven and a half and the Senators about eight and a half. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely going to be moves to be made. I mean, the Penguins, as far as free agency, uh, to say cap compliant, they really don't have any room to do much at all. So, I mean, it would have to be a trade. Something like moving Marcus Pedersen to free up cap space and, you know, having P.O. take its spot, that can still happen. It's, it's August. Um oh. But I mean, they have two and a half million in space right now, um, and then they—that's that doesn't count Aston Reese, um, who's probably going to get somewhere around two million. You can figure. So yeah, that that doesn't leave enough room to do anything else. The Warner does need to be re-signed too, but I mean, he he doesn't need waivers, so if there isn't room for him, he can start in Wilkes-Barre. That's fine. And that two and a half million dollar figure um, is is assuming that Dominic Smith starts in Wilkes-Barre, which. Um, I mean, I agree with, I know, like, when people are talking about how, though, the Penguins should have done this X, Y, and Z with, you know, the money they had, but they went out and signed up, like, these fringe Fords. I mean, they include, like, Rodriguez, who I think you need Evan Rodriguez, that that kind of depth. Um, and, and Dominic Simone, who I don't think is going to start up in Pittsburgh anyway, and if that's the case, then he's not going to count. I mean, when he was here before and when he was on the top line and on the top line in 2018, 19, I was writing a lot about, you know, why he's in the lineup and, and really what he brings to that top line. And even, I don't think that he's going to start in Pittsburgh. So these people that are still blaming Dominic Simone and uh, what his league minimum. Uh, I, I hope that, uh, I do hope that the Pedersen family doesn't listen to our podcast because I think, Every third show, we're trying to trade him somewhere, uh, he, and he of course, just makes no sense. Like, I know, no, I know. I'm just... because PO, like P- people, are, like go oh, PO. I've seen people ask why PO can't replace CC because PO doesn't play on the right side, um, and so the only kind of options in house for the right side uh, under contract are Ruido and, and Mark Friedman. Um, yeah, in both of them, I mean, they filled in occasionally. Um, and yeah, 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 yeah. And the other thing, of course, is the, the, the one of the other elements, elephants in the room, as far as the league is concerned, is we'll see where Jack Eichel ends up. Because if, if some team ends up taking Jack Eichel, uh, they may end up having to move players themselves to uh, accommodate it. So, again, there's a lot of time here. Um, I thought you were going to say Jack Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Just Jack Eichel. Jack Eichel will see in his bionic neck. Uh, hopefully that that works out for the kid because boy man I would didn't Gary Roberts have neck issues in his yeah, career yeah, yeah when he was I believe when he was in Calgary serious I mean that's that is uh whew, I, I whew, uh, whatever team trades for him they they better have some kind of thoughts insurances that he's going to be able to play at some point here soon um all right let's let's move on over the weekend uh Evgeny Malkin turned 35. Uh, obviously, his next stop, we think, after Pittsburgh is going to be the Hall of Fame. I was going to say Toronto, but I don't want to get the Maple Leaf fans worked up, but going to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, 35-year-old coming off uh, knee surgery. Uh, guys, let's talk a little bit about what can we, what should we expect when this guy comes back next season depending on when he comes back. Dave, what is a realistic thought for him, uh, expectation for him coming back next season? I mean, I I honestly can't even give you an educated guess because we have no idea when he's going to come back or, you know, really what the the nature of his injury was. Uh, You know, if if it's something 
you know, that would, uh, you know, not cause him to miss much of the regular season and, and would not cause any, uh, would not be a serious impediment to him playing. I think, you know, you still can count on him for, you know, a good point a game, probably a, a bit more than that. I think he can still be a highly effective player, but, you know, there's a lot of wear and tear on him. And, and if that's a, you know, a, you know, truly significant injury, obviously when they operate, there's, you know, there's some degree of severity there, but, you know, it, you know, you can, you can see how having knee surgery when you're 34 or 35 could, uh, be a serious impediment to you. Uh, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, no idea what his surgery is or what kind of timeline. Um, I mean, the last kind of timeline we got was that once he gets to training camp, they're going to have, you know, a better idea um, of when uh, to expect him to be back. So I, I, I know it's like I get in my live cues. It's like every week it's like, well, Malkin's probably going to be out two months. And it's like every week it's like, well, maybe he's going to be out five months. And like, it's like, fans keep you know extending the timeline and they're like maybe they should put him on a long-term hour like they did with Kucherov and it's like he he might not be out that long um so it, it's hard to you know say what to expect from this season because no one has any idea uh when he's going to be back or you know how uh you know tough this surgery will be on him but um yeah I it's his age uh I don't know he had one of his you know best offensive years, you know, production five on five is that last year. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's not, he wasn't slowing down necessarily before this. And then I mean, towards the end of the season, yes, he also then we you know was, wasn't hundred percent healthy when he came back. So um, it's hard to, it's hard to say what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is certainly understandable. All right. Uh, when we come back uh, to the 66 to 87 podcast, uh, Jody Shelley from the NHL network and, uh, the analyst for the Columbus Blue Jackets will join us. We'll talk a little bit about toughness and truculence, and uh, certainly he could bring that during his career, and also some of his thoughts on the Penguins and some other league matters. So stay with us. Welcome back uh, to the 66 to 87 podcast. And as promised, we are being joined by NHL Network analyst, uh, Columbus Blue Jacket analyst and longtime NHL player Jody Shelley. Jody, how you doing today? I'm great, Tom. Thanks to uh, thanks for having me on. Nice to catch up with you guys. Yeah, yeah. And uh, fans will probably remember during the uh, playoffs, Jody made his national debut, first uh, game uh, nationally with NBCSN. Correct, Jody? Or was That's it? Right. You, yeah. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, you know. You wonder what's going to happen, and with all the changes that were going to happen in the NHL, that landscape, um, I got to get in there, and uh, it was fun. We actually did a remote game from NBC, the big NBC studio up there in Connecticut, and uh, we did it from like a little tiny booth, but it was uh, it was fun to have three games going on at once and, and see those guys and interact with Kenny and Boosh and, and, and those guys that I know so well. Yeah, well, good stuff. Uh, I wanted to have you on at some point in this off season in, in one way, just because to kind of go back over a conversation you and I had during the regular season, and you kind of just brought this up in, unprompted and you said, you know, there's been so much focus in the last 10 years on speed and skill. You wonder if you're going to start to see a little bit of a correction 
with it's never going to go back to real toughness and grit wins the day and dump the puck and whatever. But you were thinking, you were kind of hinting that it would not surprise you to see the league maybe start to go back that way. And lo and behold, the Islanders uh, make a second run to the conference final. The Canadians with those huge defensemen uh, make it to the final. And we've seen Tampa Bay the last couple years after getting swept by the Blue Jackets, adding that kind of grit uh, that they lacked uh, in previous seasons. So do you see that this this may be continuing uh, as, as as we go forward here in the next year or two? Well, you know, I think the element of being hard to play against um, with speed uh, and maybe with a conscience is something that's developing again. And I, and I think that, you know, when you see a team hoist the Stanley Cup, go back to the St. Louis Blues yep. uh, a couple of years ago, big, um, a lot of heavy... Western Canadian farm boys um, <laughs> on the same page. Uh, you know, I'm not discriminating anyone in any part of the world. I mean, it's just that those guys were, there's a lot of Canadians on the same page there. And there was some grit to the way they played the game. And you're not talking necessarily dropping the gloves because everybody now has the option not to drop the gloves. It's totally fine. And when I see rare events like where Felino went after Corey Perry in the playoffs and Perry dropped the gloves, I was scratching my head, but then when I heard Felino talk about the captain laying on the ice, that might be a dy- dynamic that Mitch Marner and, and uh, Matthews maybe never even knew existed. Uh, that's going way back in the archives of, of sure. old school, which, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. And, and I think Felino is that kind of a throwback that, you know, it, it was something that I found it interesting. I talked to him about why he did it exactly, and he just felt new team. Uh, didn't like what the image of the, on, of the player on the ice, and he went that far. Uh, I don't think we'll ever see that again because uh, that was a rare moment, kind of a pivotal, pivotal moment in, in that uh, in that regard of, of, of getting someone to fight. Corey Perry, Nick Foligno understand, understood. I think Corey had to scratch his head and think, yeah, I guess this is how it used to be played. You know what I mean? You could see <laughs> he's, long, he's played long enough, right? Yeah. He's played you, long enough in this league. You could see the thought bubble above his head, like, I didn't mean to do it, but I understand why I have to. And, and that's hard to explain to an eight-year-old child that's trying to play hockey or, or, or when you go to a school and talk to 10 or 12-year-olds, even adults now, uh, you know, that dynamic. Because it it's a strange dynamic. But I think the element of being that team uh, that is just a, has a relentless ability that that defenseman that's always in your face or a winger that's always finishing his checks, uh, it gets old. And especially last year where everyone had to face each other eight to ten times, uh, it, you know, you get sick of people. You get sick of situations. You get sick of the way teams play. And, you know, there's teams that are easy to play against, and, and they know that, and there's teams that aren't. And I think that more teams than not are searching for that player that brings them that. Uh, I guess Tanev has an ability a little bit in Pittsburgh uh, where they can get under the skin, shake the foundation a little bit, get the fans riled up, but also the guy in the locker room that just, just, it just gives you a little bit more sense of bravado, if you will, uh, when you're in that locker room and have that player. Yeah, we'll get back to Brandon Tanev and his departure in a minute. But staying on this topic, uh, Hawk, I, I wanted to ask you, you just mentioned about those maybe those kind of the highly skilled teams that don't have that element. One team that we've seen taking a, a major about face in this offseason are the New York Rangers. I uh, went up, to, just got Ryan Reeves. Uh, they went out and got uh, one of the, the, the Tampa Bay uh, players on, the, on their third line, uh, Barkley Goodrow. Uh, 
you know, just gave up. Uh, I don't want to say gave up, but, you know, Buchnevich has moved on for Blaze from St. Louis. What do you think about the, their decision to kind of go that direction? You know, it's an abrupt one. And you go back to Jeff Gorton and John Davidson and the reaction after that game. And, and you know, you're wondering if it was because, it, you know, there was not that element there. And, and I guess we're, the writing is on the wall that, you know, this is the reaction to being pushed around a little bit. Uh, I like it. I mean, I like the acquisition of, of Ryan Reeves. I think that's a bold statement. I think he is a guy in the league that's so well respected and when you have a lot of young players who don't understand that, you know, they come from Europe or college and never seen that element, uh, you know, it's a, it's an it's not a great feeling a night before a game when you have that little bit of sense of, oh, boy, you know, he's in the lineup. Or what if, you know, what if I get the puck and he runs me over and look bad? You know, those things are real emotions and real feelings going into games. Uh, I like the, you know. When you look at that third line for Tampa uh, with Barkley Goodrow being a key piece of it and a guy who's worked his way into the National Hockey League and gets rewarded on Broadway, um, I love that. I mean, I think that's a great story. I think it's one of the best feel-good stories of the, of the signings in the offseason. Uh, he goes to Tampa, wins two cups, and, and here he is now a long way from San Jose looking back, and he's in the middle of, of uh, you know sports universe in, in New York. And I like they bring in that edge, that attitude. Uh, there's a certain way to play. And I still think, Tom, that um, players don't know how to act in the locker room play after wins, after losses. We don't do. I mean, you, no one teaches you uh, the degree of emotions and how to check them and how to act together as a team and how we're going to respond. You know, there's a team dynamic that has to kind of flow down the river with each other in that sense. And I think Shea Weber and Kerry Price did that extremely well with Corey Perry in, in Montreal. And I think that was a big dynamic of, of bringing in young players like Caulfield and letting him see what it is to be around a group of adults. You know, you got to have the, the, the man in the room, if you will, the old man in the corner or whatever it is that you can look to even out of the corner of your eye to see how things are. And I think players like Goodrow, like Reeves, there's not only the attitude, but there's also the, um, uh, they, they can confirm that, you know, it's okay to, to smile after a loss if you've given it all and you worked hard and you know you're going to show up tomorrow and bring your attitude even more. It's just, I think it's a great thing. And I think that every team within it needs that conscience and not to go out and run people uh, and drop gloves and, and, and be completely, listen, if you could get away with being the, the broadsheet bullies right now, I, that'd be great. But I don't know how that dynamic would work because I don't know how many teams would drop the gloves. But if you have players that are fast and can hit everything, I tell you what, that's a kind of a level where you can just you can play that game and intimidate players through the body and through checking and that relentless pursuit. Jody, uh, going back to the Penguins, I mean, Ron Hextall, Brian Burke, they've spoken of the need to add size, uh, snarl, truculence going forward. But so far, <laughs> really, have just replaced Brandon Tanev with, um, you know, Brock McGinn. Do you think the Penguins need to add, you know, those qualities to make a deeper run in the playoffs moving forward? You know what I do? And I think specifically of Crosby and Malkin. And, you know, I know Sid, he's a combative guy. You know, we've seen him fight uh, from time to time. He's He's a good Nova Scotia boy. You know, he's going to stand up for himself and his teammates. I got to know him over the years. And I think there's a certain um, element within that team, especially with those guys who have been around. And, and when I think of Sidney Crosby coming into the league, you know, I think of Hal Gill, Billy Guerin, uh, character guys that would do anything for their teammates. But also they guided him really well to start. 
I think that was a big part of of Sid and his. Uh, he was mature beyond his years when he got to the league, but he grew up fa- even faster as as the man in the spotlight. Um, and I think it's important for him. I think that that's a dynamic that he appreciates. Uh, he's a guy that seems to include absolutely everyone and anything that's happening at any time with this team and, and with anything he's involved with, a true leader. And I think to get a guy there to blossom, I think Brock McGinn's a, a nice pickup. I play with both of his brothers, uh, both real tough kids. Jamie was one of them. Uh, tough player I play with in San Jose. And, you know, there, there's just something about McGinn and his forecheck and how he plays the game. I like it, but I think they also need that other element. And I think, I honestly think, Taylor, that teams are searching for those players. Teams are wondering who, like may, maybe they're asking guys like me, who are the guys in the league that you would not want to fight? Um, you know what I mean? Because that element is, uh, it's important. And I think especially when you have superstars who have been to the, the top of the mountain uh, and know how to win, I think that especially in playoffs when the matchups are on, it's nice to have other players that are that, that can push back a little bit. And that, that's an important dynamic. Goaltending is another uh, big topic of discussion, uh, you know, surrounding the Penguins. You've been in Columbus when Bobrovsky experienced some of, you know, his playoff struggles. Uh, the Penguins coming off a playoff loss where, you know, Jari's performance was not that great. Uh, the players and coaches, you know, they've talked about it, expressing confidence, saying all the right things. But but as a former player, do you think there's any lingering doubt among Jari's teammates? You know what? That's a really good question. I'm not I'm not close enough to that situation to really understand it. But from afar, um, you know, there was the question mark there with Jari in the end. I think it's too much to put on him. I think the defensive position is a big responsibility, uh, not to the point of where the, the Islanders can make any goaltender look good, and so can Carolina. But I think there's a responsibility in front of him to help clean th- things up. I know there were some easy goals. Everyone analyzed and overanalyzed them in the playoffs. But I think he probably put too much pressure on himself. Was that a good learning experience? Yes, but what a good veteran goaltender that could help him relieve some pressure and maybe be a guy to talk to, help him? I think so. You know, I look at Jonathan Quick out in L.A., and I wonder if a guy like that sitting in a locker room with confidence, with Stanley Cup rings, uh, if he could help and, and, and really um, guide a guy like Jari, who to me seems like, to me just watching, he seemed like a man on an island a couple times trying to prove too much. Uh, and I would guess in that position, that would be a tough place to sit because I think the goaltender position is the loneliest position in the world, especially for you and your friends and family who are watching and, and trying to, you know, jump through every save and every shot. So uh, I think a little support system there might help him. He's got the skill set. You know, he looks like a great guy, good attitude person. So uh, I might be too quick to tell on that. Uh, Jody, on, on the Blue Jackets, there's been a number of very productive, high-profile players who were in Columbus but opted to not stay. You know, Panarin, Bobrovsky, most recently Seth Jones. Uh, but just a few days ago, you had Wierenski sign a long-term deal, make a, make a major commitment to the franchise. Do you think that can be kind of a turning point in, in keeping – some of the uh, the big name, big time talents uh, at home in the future. Yeah, I, I really do think so. And, and I, I go back to you know we had Panarin, Bobrovsky, Duchesne, Dzingle, and Panarin was the one player they wanted to keep. So let's not mistake that that 
you know, they did keep the free agents. They did put the run in because the time was right. The fan base needed it. The organization needed it. And they did some magical things. The next year they go in and it's a situation where they scrap and claw and scratch their way and make the playoffs with all the injuries and call-ups. There's no one added at the deadline. They go into the bubble. I think they added um, oh, what, They added one piece. Uh, it was a fourth-line centerman. Oh, I, anyways, I'll think of his name. And they go into the bubble, and, you know, they beat Toronto in the play-ins. Then they take Tampa to five-game overtime or five-period overtime game, and they lose. And t- the relief on Tampa to get by Columbus in that first game and then to get by them in the series – you could sense that it was a worry for them. And that's, listen, it's not Columbus, Ohio. And I know it's not a destination on a map, but the players that come here, if you can con- continue the, the trajectory in the right way, and that's that upward play, you're going to keep players here. But to answer your question, Zach Wierenski is a no-nonsense guy. His, his last contract, the offer was there. He understood what he was worth. He signed it. Here, the Blue Jackets might have overpaid for the first part of this. But he wants to be the man. He understands the excitement of this city. He's three hours from home. He knows what he's a part of. And for him to sign it like this, it puts the team in motion to get back on the right plane. And I think that's the key to this whole thing, Dave. Having players like that stay, put results and prove yourself on the ice, which they're going to have to do again. And then from there, that's where you get players to say, hey, you know what? They got it together in Columbus. I want to be a part of it. Pittsburgh's done that. Listen, Pittsburgh's not a destination city either, but they win and they keep pushing to win because they know the value of the big pieces. And that's why players want to go there and play with Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. Uh It's it's long been a given in this game, Jody, that, that some of the most rugged, toughest guys on the ice are some of the nicest guys off the ice. Uh, It also turns out, though, that that some of those toughest guys make some of the uh, the best analysts. So why is that? And <laughs> this is something that you're certainly uh, equipped to address. Yeah, it's us and the goalies. And and, and I joke with Boucher, and, and uh, who's doing a heck of a job for, for now ESPN. You know what? I think there's different levels to the game. And I think as a fourth-line winger, our leash was extremely short. So what I mean is... You know, so for me, the dynamic of fighting was one dynamic. That was always on one section of my brain. Then the dynamic of actually getting the puck and making the right play offensively was there. Natural ability, really, Dave. That's one I tucked away a little bit. I bring it out once in a while now when when I'm playing like men's league hockey or something like that. But uh, the other dynamic is the team concepts. And if you're the first man on the forecheck, if you're the, you know, the last man on the back check, if you do get switched in the defensive zone, what's the responsibility of the center iceman? When you get the puck on the wall as a winger, where's your options? What are your other teammates expecting you to do with it? Uh, the responsibility of playing the game. And I think we had to be thorough in practice. Uh, we had to be thorough in meetings. And maybe I'm overthinking it with a very educational answer. But this is my belief. I really believe this. And, you know, Boucher was a backup goalie. He saw the game from far away. He understood plays on how they unfold as a goalie. But I think for us who watched and had to be in tune with every second and every practice, every meeting and every moment of the game, uh, I think that benefited us for as far as being away from the game and understanding it. Plus, I've been around hockey for 40 years. So now 
you know, it's been 20 years in the National Hockey League or 21 now, which is, a, you know, I'm very proud to say that. But I think those details inside the ropes and understanding and have the appreciation and taking care of the details has helped us to be, uh, you know, I think Louis DeBrusque would say the same thing. He's doing a heck of a job out there in, in Western Canada. We spent a lot of time watching and making sure we did the right thing. <laughs> Good stuff, Jody. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, and as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, that's it for this edition of the 66 to 87 podcast. For Jody Shelley, for Dave Molinari and Taylor Haas, this is Tom Reed. We'll talk to you later in the week.